Hello everyone and welcome back to The War Room, which is our interview series as part of the Clone Star Pod. Now this week I always say I am one of your hosts, but literally I am one of your hosts this week because I am of course Sean Ferrick and joining me is my wonderful partner in crime, Joseph Hurley. First of all, Joseph, you're very welcome here. Well, I finally let you on The War Room series, so thank you very much. Thanks very much for having me, Sean. You're very welcome, you're very welcome. Now, we have another guest this week. We have with us the great VFX maestro, Mr. Dan Curry. How are you, sir? Uh, very well, thanks. I appreciate you having me on the show. Oh, I, I, I assure you it is our pleasure. Thank you so much. Um, just in preparation for this podcast, myself and Joseph, we went through uh, your book. And of course, I went through, you know, kind of running through things online and realized that we can probably teach master's courses in your career. Well, I I would find that hardly worth said <laughs> people's trouble. <laughs> like, I, uh, as part of the intro, Dan, like I was kind of going to write down and say, you know, normally you have a brief description of who someone is. And I was there going, if I actually tried this, I don't think I'd actually be able to stop writing about your absolutely ridiculous achievements, especially for all your contributions to Star Trek, like VFX, you know, guru for 18 years, you know, creator of so much of the Klingon weaponry, the also the, you know, in terms of the martial arts, designer of the DS9 Voyager generation, Star Trek IV, um, opening kind of, um, say, credits uh, kind of sequence, and, you know, multi-Emmy Award winner as well. It's, frankly, it's a ludicrous career. Like, when you, it's a very kind of stupid question to start off with, when you look back on it, how do you feel when you kind of say to yourself, I did so much in 18 years on Star Trek? Well, actually, look back on it and think more about uh, what I didn't achieve um, and things I would have liked to have done. And and so I think uh, every artist kind of looks back at their career that way. It's, gee, I wish I'd done this that way or wish I'd recognized this opportunity to do that or whatever. So I think uh, uh, it's less about... Um, looking for reasons to uh, uh, glorify myself and more about uh, looking for reasons where I really screwed up. So do you find that then when you watch back episodes of The Next Generation or Next Generation DSI Voyager Enterprise, do you find yourself looking at them going, oh God, I could have done that better or I could have done that better? Absolutely. You, you can't <laughs> shut off. You can't shut off and go, no, I'm just going to enjoy this. You look at it and go, no, I, I made a mistake. Oh no. <laughs> I, no, I can't do that. And that there were a couple of experiments that we did that uh, I I thought would be good, and they were really uh, really a bad idea. One of the experiments was uh, I it always annoyed me in standard definition uh, television that the stars would leap from scan line to scan line, and they would reminded me of paramecia uh, swimming across the uh, bottom of a petri dish through a microscope, and. Uh, I, I found that annoying. So I kept looking for ways to do that. And a friend of mine told me that when they do beer pours for commercials, they shoot them at 60 frames a second so that there's a new film frame for every video field. So that that's why the beer pours look so smooth. So I did, oh, well, let's try that with the stars. And uh, they looked great. The problem was they... Uh, were so startlingly clear that they didn't look like they belonged in the show. So that was yeah. one of my big screw-ups. 
Um, and in fact, I'm glad you brought it up. I mean, it was the one thing we were discussing before this <laughs> podcast was we just had to hold you to task. Not at all. No, but it's 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 funny as well, because as as audience, as viewers, what we, of course, see is we see the result. And of course, you're looking at the process as well. And that's, you know, part of the reason that we do the series is because we, we want to hear that kind of thing. Like, that's fascinating. We would never have known that process only for you describing it. Um which is a little bit cool, I think. Um, now, as show correctly mentioned as well, like you have contributed so much in 18 years, but I'm going to go right back to the beginning, which is, of course, the opening credit sequence for Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, uh, which is, I believe that was your first film credit as a designer of the opening titles. Is that correct? No, I'd, I'd done a lot more than that. I, I've, uh, although I, I that that title sequence holds a uh, very warm place in my heart um, uh, because it was the opportunity to work with uh, the great Carl Reiner a again. I'd worked with him several times before that, and Steve Martin. And uh, one of my favorite memories of that time, I was working at a company called Modern Film Effects, and. Uh, Carl and Steve came over to my studio and spent a couple of hours just talking about the painting. And uh, my most gratifying moment in that process was uh, I worked on the painting for a couple of weeks and then they wanted to come over and, and see it before I shot it. And it was a, a black and white oil painting that was supposed to look like a B-movie matte painting from the 1940s. And when they walked through the door of, of my studio, which was uh, quite a big room, uh, the first word I heard out of Carl's mouth was, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> but hang on a second. We, we, we skipped something here. Dead men don't wear a pad is fine. But when I was reading the book, one question I had for you, Dan, above all other questions I have is, what was it like working with Cheech and Chong? That is the important question that we need to get clarity on. Uh, yeah, that was on uh, Chi Chi Chang's next movie at Universal Heartland, and they were um, they were a lot of fun. They they took um, uh, took it very seriously, um, and the best thing about them is they listened to everybody around them because, uh, like uh, a lot of people that tend to want to obtain omniscience, uh, the key to that is knowing what you don't know. And so th th they uh, uh, they were just really great to hang around with and, and have fun with. So, yeah. And at that point in your life, say, when you were making Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid and things like that, what had your experience been of Star Trek to that point? Like, had you watched the original series and the animated series and things like that, or was it not in your radar at all? Uh, I We didn't watch a lot of Star Trek uh, I was in in uh, my senior year of high school, and my parents were not sci-fi fans, and uh, uh, so I didn't see much Star Trek. And then when I was in college, it was in those days it was unheard of for any college student to possess a TV, um, and so I knew about it. And I remember uh, seeing my first. We had a black and white TV. I remember seeing my first uh, color broadcast of Star Trek, and I was surprised. I thought Spock would have a, a, a green or a, a blue complexion. Mm. But um, I liked it. I, uh, probably the most influential film for me was Forbidden Planet, 
as for a lot of visual effects artists of my generation. And it was the first time seeing it as a boy. It was the first big budget cerebral science fiction film. It was actually Shakespeare's The Tempest. Um, and uh, I realized uh, through a, an epiphany that this movie was a combination of live actors, uh, physical sets, uh, cartoon animation, models, and paintings. And it enabled the filmmakers to create a world that couldn't exist outside of, of a cinema screen. And I said to myself, I think I could do that. You and you knew earlier on, like from what you're saying in the book and, and stuff read about from different things, you knew earlier on, early on, this is what you wanted to do. This is what really kind of enthralled you. Yeah, I didn't think it was possible at the time, but I knew I'd really love to to make movies and, and work on them and and create worlds. I saw as well, you spoke about in your book that when, you know, you were younger, you were making films on Super 8 with, you know, what we would effectively describe as, you know, paper clips and string these days. Um, and, you know, what was that? What was that journey like going from, you know, working at home to then you're working on, you know, movie sets? Yeah, well, that was pretty surprising. And to date myself, uh, Super 8 had yet to be invented. We It was uh, Split 8 where they'd use a 16 millimeter daylight spool, uh, which was filmed round up, wound up on a little metal reel. And you'd shoot half of it, pull the reel out, turn it over and shoot the other half. And then the lab would split it down the middle and, and glue them together. I, I'm going to be honest. I'd not even heard of that technology before. You've just described it there. Uh, and I thought I had done my homework and I'd not even heard of it. That sounds like such a laborious process. Uh, yeah, but that, that was state of the art at the time. Oh, it was right nice. after the uh, transition from clay tablets to papyrus. <laughs> I, I know from reading the book and like obviously we'll get into it later on, the transition from, say, you know, the kind of the practical use of, uh, say, effects into the CG world. Do you look back on it and kind of miss those days of kind of really being hands-on with things and kind of, you know, the old way of doing things as opposed to, say, the new CG way of doing things? Uh, well, certainly a lot more fun because we got to play with uh, some of the most beautiful toys in the world. I can't tell you how many times we've shot the Enterprise or the mm -hmm. Klingon Bird of Prey or Deep Space Nine, and they're just, as objects, such beautifully crafted uh pieces of sculpture by uh, designed by our, our art department and built by Greg Jean and Tony Meininger. Um, and, and it was really fun. Uh, there was a, a, a wonderful element of play in what we did when we'd be asked to say, oh, we need a, a gap in the time-space anomaly. And I'm saying, well, how are we going to do that? And then discovered the wonders of liquid nitrogen. And if we blew an air jet on it, it would uh, uh, be turbulent. And so it could actually function as miniature fire. Or if we spilled liquid nitrogen out of a trough, it would run like some weird material. And there was an element, uh, the uh, the pom-pom, which I stumbled across in a store. And by shaking this Mylar cheerleader's pom-pom over a mirror, that became the force field around the Enterprise. It became uh, miniature um, uh, 
energy creatures and stuff like that. I, I have it. to I have to read something here because I have a note written down from reading your book and my note just says end of page 66. And this is exactly the type of thinking that Dan Curry has. This is about extraordinary elements. And this is this very short paragraph. Energy patterns are everywhere if you look for them. Once we filmed liquid detergent in a wire coat hanger. First of all, how the hell do you even consider you're going to do that? We just dipped the hanger in a bucket of soap, like kids, kids blowing bubbles, producing a sheet of beautiful iridescent patterns. We use that element for energy fields, auroras, and light, lightning, lighting effects. So basically, a lot of the effects we saw on Star Trek were just basically soap bubbles in a coat hanger. Uh, that's true. And it was just, I think one of the things I learned as a boy, and it, and I think the other guys on the team, uh, it should be stressed that there were a lot of people that worked on the visual effects of Star Trek. There was no single hero, and that includes me, um, that it was just a, a team effort of everybody working toward a common goal. And I think we just remembered to look at things not as what they are, but what they could be, and look at them independent of their scale and original purpose. And, and so I remember doing that, remembering that, yeah, when blowing soap bubbles, I could remember looking through that little ring that things look kind of iridescent, which is weird color patterns. If we had a big one we could shoot, we could use that for something. It is as well. It's it's quite it's quite funny as well. There is um something I'm going to drop a little thing here that we'll come back to is that you you lovely man are responsible for two of the most disturbing moments of my childhood, which I will come back to in a little while. But yes, uh, these things ha I have never forgotten these. But before that, before you traumatized children everywhere, um, Star Trek Four: The Voyage Home. So this is your first Star Trek credit. You do the uh, opening credits for this film. Okay. Um, and now, it, it, now, although it has since gone on in lore to be, comp I think, unofficially renamed Star Trek, the one with the whales. And I can't wait for a remastered version where we get that as the title of the film. Um, what was what was this process? So from so you get the job and you're like, right, how am I going to do this? Well, uh, titles are pretty straightforward. You get something called the legals from the studio with a list of names and then their legal uh, issues about their sizes and relative to each other and relative to the main title card and uh, the producers and directors and editors uh, called me up they already had a relationship with my company modern film effects and went over to see them and they told me uh, we want something in mind what uh, do you have a cool idea and i said well why don't we have the main title card beam in instead of just fade in fade out and they said, that's cool. Can you do that? And I said, yeah, we'll figure out something. And that was pretty much it. It is because it's unique in that way, isn't it? That it has that, that would have, and I think that sums up for me, I get very quickly that the film's got to be much more playful than the ones before it had been. And of course it is one of the funniest Star Trek films of them all. Um, and even just that simple, that simple effect of we'd gone from, the motion picture, which I like to describe as it's like a train hits you straight in the face when that, you know, the fanfare and everything comes up and it kind of slaps you in the face. Then you have Ra uh, Wrath of Khan, which is, you know, a bit of a slower buildup. And you've got Search for Spock, which is I, I, I love Search for Spock, but it's kind of the put on the kettle and we'll have a cup of tea while we're going through the opening credits. And it's lovely like that. Voyage Home it's just we're here for a laugh. And that's the feeling I get from the off, from the jump. Well, uh that's good that you got that feeling. 
Um, and then, so I, I think I've got my order at this point. So we go from Voyage Home, then we go to Encounter at Farpoint, because I know you did work with on Final Frontier as well, but Encounter at Farpoint comes, comes before this. So you've really been with Star Trek since since the Voyage Home, right up until right up until the last episode of Enterprise. Uh, that's that's correct. That was that was, uh, and Star Trek was a wonderful opportunity for me. Um, first and foremost, was working with great people. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you work on a show, it's like you become part of family, and you spend so much time together, and. Then the other thing, I, it was a uh, a place where a wide range of my goofy skills had value and where I could. And the other thing that was remarkable about Star Trek was the fact that we each department had such an immense amount of mutual trust. Um, a lot of. Uh, especially television shows that departments are like medieval fiefdoms and you don't cross into somebody else's turf while on Star Trek, uh, thanks to the great Mike Westmore, Herman Zimmerman, Richard James, um, the construction crew, uh, special effects, uh, stunts, um, everybody was, was welcome to be part of somebody else's department. So I was kind of an honorary member of the art department when uh, we'd get a script and I'd say to Herman or Richard, hey, you know, I'd like to design that. And they say, okay. And that's unheard of. Um, and uh, uh, and for Dennis Madelone to be uh, our stunt coordinator, to be so welcome of my input on martial arts and designing weapons. Um, and it was interesting when I first created the Batleth, uh, there was a script where Worf was to inherit a primordial Klingon bladed weapon. And the guys in the art department, wonderful artists, we're friends to this day, but they sent down something that looked like a pirate's cutlass with an extra blade glued on it. And even as a, as a kid, I could recognize uh, weapons designed for movies that were designed to be cool, but were not practical. And I'd been imagining the Batleth for a long time, although I didn't have a name for it, and uh, but had no reason to make one. So I made a foam core one and went in and showed Rick Berman. I said, well, why don't we give the Klingon something that's never been seen before, but is ergonomically sound and I'll invent a whole martial art for it. And Rick said, well, if it was two inches shorter, I'd accept that. <laughs> two inches shorter. I, I love it. So, so we've done the entire design and you've just said, I'm going to create an entire martial arts for this. Uh, not really sure. How much more free work do you want? Like, um, that's that's <laughs> hilarious, though. Um, and, that, that... Well, that was Rick's philosophy. Uh, always find fault. It keeps them humble. Um, oh, uh, I mean, I, I, I wish I could say he's the only person in the world who's done that. But I mean, Joseph is sitting right over here. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, um, I, wa- I wanted to ask, though, in creating the Batleth, the Mechleth, all of the, this style of martial arts, how many of Dennis Madelon's broken bones are you personally responsible for? Oh, uh, none. Uh, but it was funny, <laughs> when I showed Dennis the f- weapon, uh, he said, well, I can't work with that, that's ridiculous. And then I started demonstrating how it could be used and showed him the value of the de- decapitation flange, and he immediately became an evangelist for the Batleth. And uh, we we still are in constant contact. Dennis is one of the most generous, uh, kind-hearted people you could possibly meet. 
And Dan, what did you model the kind of the martial arts style on? Because, you know, it takes a lot of confidence to go into Rick Berman and say, not only do I have this weapon, I'm going to actually design how people are going to move using it. And I suppose how much has the movement evolved over the years? Because obviously Dennis would have his partners, Michael Dorn would have had his partners. Obviously people like Tony Todd, Robert O'Reilly would have probably had their own input too, the same as Roxanne Biggs Dawson. Like how much has it evolved over the years? Um, well, it's it's evolved as, you know, each each person gets their hand on it. And it's just like, you know, any weapon you, you uh, come up with uh, uh, when you have it in hand, there are things that work for your body and your movement. And uh, so everybody has had a hand in it. Um, and uh, I would, there was a, a, a moment where war over Quark on deep space nine was supposed to have a bat left fight. And so I worked closely with um uh, with uh, Armin Shimmerman, and uh, he would take videos of me using it, and I designed it the moves specifically for Armin's uh, physical properties. And at the time, uh, we were next door neighbors to Roxanne Dawson, and so we kept rubber bat lefts at home so we could have um, bat left lessons in our backyards. <laughs> So I have to ask then, Darren, if it came down to a fight, who would win in a battle fight, you or Michael Dorn? Alexander. Good answer. Good answer. <laughs> that, is, that is a name we do not hear nearly enough, or possibly too much, depending on what side of the fight you come down on. Well, and I'll tell you how the, the mech left came into existence. When Michael Sondarn onto Deep Space Nine, I got a funny phone call from him that said, Daniel, I need a new weapon. And he wanted something small enough he could hide behind his back, but bad enough it could take on a batleth if you had the skill for it. So Michael came over to my house and I showed him through some of the weapons I brought back from from Asia. And uh, we settled on the front edge of a Nepalese Kora sword. And, and then I just imagined what else would be. And I made one out of... Uh, corrugated cardboard reinforced with popsicle sticks and we went out in the backyard and fooled around with spears and other stuff and that was the mechleth uh, unchanged and oh, something coming up for the third season of picard uh michael called me up again and said uh he wanted a new weapon and so i came up with something that uh i think is the first sword in history that had that capability and you will see that on the uh, premiere of uh, Picard season three. That is the Curleth, is that right? That is correct. Wow. Uh, oh, we're 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 very excited. So obviously the um the trailer for uh, for Picard just dropped there on uh, as of recording just dropped the other day, and in it there is a shot of Worf wielding the Curleth. And I'm I, I I Joseph will will know this as well. I think I've been buzzing with excitement for the last few days since that trailer came out because there's just something about Worf standing there in Klingon makeup with his sword. And I mean, and just for the purpose of listeners, um, Dan has just switched off the background that he had on the Zoom, and I'm looking at mechleths that are sitting there, and I just I can I have one? Uh, and I've got uh, if you got a moment, I've got the the curleth outside this door. We absolutely have a moment for that. Oh, oh my goodness. And I think, uh, say, saying so myself, I think it's the first sword in history that you could do that this with. You can use this hole, which I echoed the Batleth, 
so that you can do two-handed blocks, but you can also let go with the normal hand and use the front edge as an axe. Oh my goodness. Dan, the thought you put into these weapons is absolutely beyond, I think, what anyone could. Like, as you said, most weapons that were, that were previously designed that you saw, they might look cool, but they aren't practical. But across all the weapons you've designed, there's a huge practicality like within all of it. They've got to be. And I use that same philosophy for designing guitars. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... It's it, it's funny because at, at a glance, right, so when I was obviously watching TNG growing up, at a glance, I would look at, say, the Battleth, and I used to think, you know, all oh, that seems like that would be awkward to use or, you know. And it's only so it's like, no, it's probably much more sturdy than a standard sword is because then you've got all the weight at one end with the Battleth, and now with the Curleth as well that we can see, you can spread out your stance a little bit more. I'm saying this as if I know anything about martial arts, by the way. I hope this well, is coming across as if I'm an expert. I wanted something to be fluid and, and constantly changing. And, uh, you know, I, I studied martial arts in Asia for years and uh, uh, and I learned the, the essence of that. And especially uh, there are two basic schools of martial arts, the external and the internal or the hard and the soft. And I found that hard martial arts are a little more uh easy to understand, but when you get into the internal martial arts, it's that fluidity. And uh, I think uh, that's what I wanted with the bat left, something that's really fluid and is constantly moving and can do all sorts of uh, things that are unexpected by your opponent, including um, finding a way to eliminate all hope he might have of producing progeny. <laughs> actually dan there's a question actually now that you're talking about it is in the next generation episode reunion uh wharf is showing alexander the batlet and i remember at the time like the playmates action figure of wharf which i actually still have here he would hold the batlet in a weird way it would just fit into the into the kind of the the basically i was like a kind of a, a socket on the on the wrist of the of the of the action figure but in the episode Worf explains to alexander how to hold the batlet and like it make it a part of your arm and how he kind of gracefully shows it would that have been what you would have worked on michael with and kind yes. of explaining yeah yeah and there are episodes in next generation where Worf is teaching classes Yes. Uh, of, of martial arts on the Enterprise. Well, in those moments, I would actually be standing near the camera at a frame going through the motion so Michael could see me and then the other actors would watch Michael. So wait a second. In the episode Clues, the episode Clues starts with Worf leading a martial arts class on the Enterprise. Were you standing behind the camera when that was being... Oh my God, you were. That's one of my yeah. favorite scenes yeah. in Star Trek. I love it. Oh my god, that's absolutely gas. That is seriously, seriously cool. I'm actually and funny enough that had me thinking of uh lower well be the TNG lower decks as well, where we have Wharf and Seto that are training as well. Oh, this is fun. this and that's Mokbara, isn't it? Mokbara. Yeah. Ah. Oh. So Dan, when you went on to work on the next generation, um, Gene had wanted to kind of a lot of kind of you know was always being that Gene wanted to kind of almost replicate the original series and just do it with updated uh, kind of you know just effects and things like that. And 
the original plan was only going to be for what there were 40 VFX shots of the Enterprise, and that quickly went out the window. Was it a case it was just almost like replicating the original series in terms of we just have these stock images of, of the Enterprise, like orbiting a planet or going to warp, whatever, and we'll just keep using those, and then quickly decided, no, that's not going to work for us. Yeah, and and just swap out the background. So it, so the Enterprise entering orbit, just swap out a new planet, and that way you, you don't have to reshoot the model. And we certainly had a lot of stock shots like that of you know, a simple flyby. So we had enter orbit, leaving orbit, in orbit, um, uh, going to warp, coming out of warp, uh, figuring that they would beam down and the adventure would take place on the planet. And that didn't last very long, even a week uh, into the pilot. It was just not uh, acceptable to audiences to to do that, especially after having seen uh, the brilliant visual effects on Star Wars and 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 other uh, big sci-fi productions. Uh, it was uh, we had to deliver uh, that quality to the audience, or we wouldn't have an audience. There's actually, there's one thing that we have done um, in work because we've gone through and looked at the various, because with the remaster as well, I mean, TNG, there's so much of it is gorgeously shot. And with so many of these hero shots of the Enterprise D and we were, we were going through and kind of going like, when, when was this shot from? When was that shot from? But also in our research, and actually funny enough, going back to Voyage Home for a second. Now, I know you were not working on the um, on the models of Voyage Home, but I remember they had awful trouble filming some of those flyby shots of the Vedra probe because they had to, you know, the, the actual description of the phrase uh, eludes me for a second. But when they had to, pan through the whole ship the lighting was completely off how difficult was it getting those shots of the enterprise d the way we see them in the show well they were difficult and uh, our time was our biggest enemy uh, we were sometimes working 80 hour weeks to get get done in time because the air dates were were relentless and to not deliver would be unforgivable um but yeah, and one of the tricks that we learned uh, was that by shooting a, a gray ball uh, after you sh shoot the ship that drives the, the shot, that way when we introduce a new ship, we'd light the gray ball so it looked the same and then replace it with a new ship and then um, uh, tweak the lighting so that it worked best for that ship, but to make sure that the, all the light came from the same off-screen imaginary source. That's one thing, actually, that you can, you can see the difference um, between, uh, well, TNG and, of course, DS9 and Voyager as well, and going into Enterprise, with so, because, obviously, the, the manner of CGI has changed, with something like Discovery and Strange New Worlds and, of course, Picard, is that the... I, I remember, you know, in TNG, you'd have this beautifully lit up Enterprise D and it'd be lit from almost all angles, would be flying past the screen. And then there's some scenes in some of the recent ones where you're just like, you're going like, hang on, what ship is that? Oh, it's the Enterprise. Um, I actually, I kind of, I have to say, I miss the, the more brightly lit ships of TNG through to Enterprise because uh, I love seeing them. Call me crazy. Well, we also learned that... Um the audience can imagine more than we can really show them. So what we would do is do a lot of backlighting and very dramatic chiaroscuro, you know, uh, 
severe uh, light and shadow. And that way, there on certain areas of the ship, you couldn't really see anything but shadow. And the audience would then imagine. And any time you invite an audience member to participate with their imagination in what you're showing them, it becomes their property. Yeah, I like that as well. Some of the, I mean, as is true with with me, true into um the script as well. You know, when you when you are invited to kind of fill in some of the gaps yourself, it becomes a bit more of a personal experience. Um, and I want to I want to talk about one of the first horribly scarring moments um that you left on my life, Dan. Um, <laughs> which was I remember being far far too young, and poor old Remick. Yeah, I was figuring you were going in that direction. Yeah, you kind of because 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 even now, thirty years later, thirty five years later, it's as horrifying now. Um, did you? I'm sure you did in this, but did you know that for a long time it was uh, heavily censored on television? Um, yeah, I understand it was banned by the BBC for a while. It was indeed. Yeah, um, obviously it slipped through the the cracks at some point because I remember just going like. Oh my god! Oh my god! I've got one of those bugs inside me, and oh my god! Um, I'm pretty sure the first time I ever actually saw that scene fully was when the Next Generation came out on uh, DVD. So it would have been back around 2003, 2004. Up until that point, like you saw, like Riker and Picard phasering Remick, and then basically mm. that was it. You didn't actually see anything at all. I'd seen still images here and there in different magazines, but that was all we ever saw of it for many years. Uh, that's interesting. Well, the, the story behind that is it's certainly a combination of a lot of people's work. Um, uh, the Dave Stipes animated like with puppet animation, the the little parasite skittling across the floor. Mm. And then my friends at Makeup Effects Lab uh, run by Alan Apone um, created that dummy with the chest cavity and to get that disgusting goo that ran out we packed the chest with cotton candy little water spritzers and a lot of little plastic parasites and uh, to get the the light coming out from inside when they zap his chest with phasers i splashed acetone onto black styrofoam with a couple of lights behind it in a smoke tent that created all those rays coming out and uh, but the real issue was when uh, they saw Remick, the producers saw Remick's head blow up. They mm -hmm. said, eh, is that a little harsh for TV? And I said, well, I didn't think anything of it. And uh, and so uh, they said, well, you have a son about sex, right? And I said, yeah. I said, well, would you have a problem with him saying that? Said, no. So they brought him in. They were doing a sound mix and they brought him into into the uh, uh, the the room where they were doing the, the sound mix. I have a big screen. And my son, Devin, was about six at the time. And he comes in, sits down, and he that scene comes up, and they all turn to watch his reaction. And he's just sitting there really calmly watching it. And they said, well, what did you think of that, Devin? And he said, well, you know, you should make a Remick action figure that when you press a button on it, his head blows up. <laughs> and... Uh, so they said, well, I guess it's okay. And then it aired that way. Uh, I neglected to tell him that he was with me when uh, I visited the makeup effects lab to see how it all was. And by the way, that head was raw meat 
packed into a mold of Paul Newman's head uh, by Dick Brownfield, our wonderful special effects supervisor. I remember hearing that fact. Uh, I just remember hearing that fact and thinking, has Paul Newman offended you in some way that you felt the need to blow up his head? Uh, well, it, it just happened to be a mold that was handy and <laughs> it wouldn't have mattered if it was him or Paul Muni. And Dan, just out of curiosity, so as you were going through um, the years on Star Trek uh, between 87 and 2005, with the work that you were doing, how were you seen, say, in the effects industry? Were you seen as like kind of almost market leaders, the experts in kind of what was going on? Were people coming to you, to all of you for advice in terms of, look, we want to do this effects shot, what should we do? Or how did it all kind of work? I'm just curious, because from a point of view of, say, you know, as you said, the next generation starts, it's only going to be, we're going to do stock uh, shots, but before you know it, completely expands into something else. And then as time goes by, you perfect your craft. How were, how were ye as kind of artists viewed? Well, uh, it's hard to tell. Uh, we were just desperately trying to keep on schedule. And then, of course, ILM was in existence and they had worked on the pilot and they built the the seven foot enterprise. And uh, one of my all time favorite models, the Klingon bird of prey, which is an exquisite object. Um, and so we just aspired to do work as close to ILM's quality as possible. And they were great. If we had a question, we'd call them up. And there's a lot of camaraderie in the in the vi visual effects industry. Um, for example, on the pilot of Star Trek Voyager, we go into a region called the Badlands, which had uh, vortexes of fire going on. And Dick Brownfield knew uh, the guy who was running the show at Universal Studios tour uh, for Backdraft, the, the movie about firemen. Oh, yeah. And the show took place in this giant concrete fireproof building. And you would actually see live fire do all these amazing, amazing things. And so Dick arranged for us to go over. And the guys who set up the show were kind enough to share with complete strangers how they were able to create these fire vortexes just by using baffling and stuff like that, that use its own heat rising to get the fire to behave in certain ways. And uh, thanks to their generosity, that's how we uh, were able to create those fire vortexes for Voyager. And just kind of going on from that, Dan, what would you say is probably the most impressive thing you ever created for Star Trek? And we said at the start of the episode, you look back at certain things and you kind of, you can't disassociate yourself from the episode and the work and all that. But what's the one thing that every time you look at an episode, you say, that's brilliant. And I'm really happy that I made that decision to do that. And that's a really difficult question to answer. Um, um, I don't think I have a one, maybe uh, uh, the Voyager title sequence, um, maybe um, the Batleth, um, maybe um, the finale of uh, Next Generation, All Good Things. Um, I think we had a great team working on that um, and uh, creating Primordial Earth with Methacil, which is this uh transparent substance of great viscosity kind of matching that of mucus um and uh with dave stipes and and uh tony dublin we 
made this big table with lights underneath it and putting burnt cork and uh, uh, AB smoke on it. We created this illusion of lava flowing. Uh, that was that was pretty cool. Um, I I don't think there's a uh, a single thing. I I think uh, we all look back on it as a body of work rather than yeah. uh, things individual. Although there are a lot of groaners that if I watch them again, I kind of how could I possibly thought that was a good idea? You have to give us an example of one or two of those groaners that I'd be very curious. Have like would we kind of say, oh yeah, that's obviously a groaner, or would it be something that? Say because of your high level, the high bar you kind of set that you know you might go, oh God, no, I, I wasn't a fan of that. But most of us might even pick up on it. Well, the the groaners were uh, when I was experimenting with mixing uh, twenty four frames a second, thirty frames per second elements, uh, thinking some might look better than others, and they they were all failures. So those are the biggest groaners uh, that I have. Uh, you know, I I had good intentions, but. Uh, uh, looking back on them, they were. Uh, it, it should have been more obvious that they would not be as visually successful as I hoped. What is something that? So, what is more impressive to you? The fact that you have played two characters in Star Trek, or that you had a ship named after you that you designed, of course, yourself. Which one do you prefer? I don't know. Um, and the, the Kurleth is from Curry. Kurleth. Oh my word! There oh, that makes out. sense. How did I not get that? How did I not get it that? It was so obvious, and we didn't even pick up on it. Yeah. Well, they changed oh. the spelling to be more Klingon by replacing the C with a K. Oh, okay. I, I like that. Whereas the USS Curry itself has the original name. <laughs> uh, uh, I, it's true, and um, this is it. Oh wow! Oh, that's wow. the filming model. Oh my God! Yeah, this is a filming model, and so the uh, damage has window screen and bent stuff. And what I what we did is we I forget the name of the DS Nine episode where we needed a fleet, and uh, so anybody that wanted to could. Uh, we just had piles of boxes of of Star Trek models and asked people to kit bash them or just assemble them in ways they were never intended to be. And um, that was um, so anybody that wanted to do one would have a, a ship with their name on it in the fleet. That's absolutely brilliant. And then there was one episode of Deep Space Nine where uh, they had things that would be like today's iPhones. Uh, and there was a, a deceased mad scientist. So Mike Okuda took a picture of me, uh, made a little print, took my hair off and put it in that object. And uh, so I was also a, a dead mad scientist. I guess that was appropriate. <laughs> and playing to type. Uh, no, that is brilliant. That is brilliant. Um, also, so you were a second unit director on a lot of 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 Star Trek, but you directed Birthright Part Two outright. Like that is that is your baby. Um, that what was correct. that experience like? Um, it was, uh, it was really enjoyable, and I was much appreciated. It was a Wharf episode because mm. of my friendship with Michael Dorn. He made it as easy as possible for me. And uh, the crew was 100% behind me. Jonathan West was 
incredibly supportive as a director of photography, had a great editor. Um, so the problem with that is the script was 11 pages too long, which meant I really had one last day to shoot. And I knew that one day's work would be thrown away just to get back to time. So that was the uh, the frustrating uh, element of that. Uh, but it was very satisfying. And uh, the support I got from from everybody on the show was uh, was really gratifying. It made me feel uh, uh, truly part of the family. And just knowing your personality, Dan, like you just you've tried your hand at absolutely everything and you've you've always just thrown yourself in. Like was directing something you you wish you'd done more of? Absolutely. Um, uh, who wouldn't uh, who wouldn't like uh, having a bunch of actors and telling them what to do and they have to do it. <laughs> and you know, working with great people. No, it, that, that was obviously a facetious comment, but uh, no, I, I loved shaping it and I wish I had the opportunity to do more, but it was, uh, uh, they didn't want me offline from visual effects uh, from that. That was the reason cited, but I did get to do a lot of uh, second unit work and, and that was, really fun and i did a lot of uh, the action sequences as well as the technical sequences and uh, um, you know the elaborate uh, visual effects sequences were really really fun to do because they would take sometimes one shot would take all day and they certainly couldn't do that on first unit and what was your favorite second unit directing say segment that you ever did oh that's uh, another hard one um Sorry, Dan, I'm not giving you easy questions at all here. Like, this is an absolute <laughs> hardball interview to ask the hard questions. <laughs> this, this is it. Like, you know, that's it. Pick your favorite kid. Pick your yeah. <laughs> Well, that's, um, well, there was one that I liked uh, that was uh, really a stunt. And it was an episode where Riker is being sucked into another dimension and he rises off his bed and is pulled through this kind of ethereal sphincter into another dimension. And, uh, I didn't want to do an actor on wires. It always looked like an actor on wires. So I figured out that if we made gravity our friend, going back to martial arts, um, that we could uh, figure out a way that we could get the actor to rise off the bed without putting him on wires. So I got uh, enlisting the aid of Dennis Badalon and, and uh, Riker's stunt double, Tommy Morga, also a uh, evangelist for the bat left. Um, I figured out that if I had Tommy jump 40 feet uh, out of the uh, the scaffolding on the ceiling of the soundstage onto a pile of cardboard boxes, tip the camera uh, so that instead of looking like he was falling down, he was rising up and shoot it at 350 frames a second, which would slow him down. Then it would look like he was gently rising on this graceful arc. And uh, it worked out. And so we shot him against a big blue screen um, hanging on the set. And uh, when you see it in the show, he gently rises and goes through this sphincter, which was basically a funnel made out of beaten modeling clay that we filled up with milk and let the milk dribble down. And as it went through all the rivulets, it was part of that and then mixed that in with elements of liquid nitrogen. 
That is, it's fascinating. I think for for so many people, when we start to hear just how many separate parts go into one shot, because I know exactly the scene you're talking about. Of course, it's schisms. Another reason that I struggled with sleep in the nineties. Uh, funny how that keeps coming back to you, Don. But um, it is. It, it's a very wonderfully creepy scene because looking at it, it looks so wrong. I mean, we don't move that way as people. That pesky gravity thing gets in the way. And yet it just, it's just unsettling enough. But it doesn't take you out of the scene either. Uh, it really, really, and it's held up very, very well, particularly in the remaster. Um, as actually, as a person responsible for so many of these impressive things, which are now seen in super HD, how gratifying for you was it when the remaster was happening? Uh, well, that was uh, a two-edged sword. There were some things I liked and some things I didn't. Um, uh, for the remastering, I was only responsible for season two. Oh, okay, yeah. And so the other ones, and I know uh, when we did uh, even things like transporters, when when I was doing them, I would, on a paint box, I would hand airbrush uh, the actor as if they were a marble sculpture so that there would be denser sparkles in the middle and looser at the end. And I would do little focus shifts. And in some of the remastering, they didn't bother to do that. They just had a, a mat uh, you know, or a, a flat silhouette. Oh, that is, oh, that is a shame. Um, because obviously so much effort and planning has gone into it. It's like, no, no, it's meant to look that way. There's um another project, which I, I won't name out of fairness, where, a sort of a sledgehammer approach to the remaster was done and it changed quite a lot of the meaning that had gone into the original shots in that way because, oh, we'll do this. Anyway, it doesn't matter. That's another show altogether. Um, the opening title sequences for DS9 and for Voyager, they often, and including uh, all of the tracks which are currently on, all 72 different Star Trek shows which are currently airing, um, Deep Space Nine and Voyager, I think, always rank the top two. Um, how does that feel, knowing that, you know, everyone just comes back to your titles? They're the best. Well, uh, that, uh, much appreciated. And uh, uh, Deep Space Nine, uh, when we did that title sequence, Tony Meininger, the great model builder, was working on the hero model of, of, the, uh, of the space station. But he had also made a very rough a plywood mock-up of the space station so that the team at image G motion control stage could figure out a way to move this six foot diameter model that was very heavy around. And so I went over with a home video camera one day and my colleague, Eddie Williams, and I just looked at the model and kind of walked around it and got a feel for it. And I said, well, I think I want the title sequence to be a ballet. So I just did a bunch of handheld shots kind of dancing around with the station wanting to get closer and closer and i wanted to open it with a with a comet uh to make a statement that we're really far away where comets lie and uh and so that's how that came about and then i did a really crude um what would be called a previs today uh of these images from that and I even had eddie wavy a, a black uh, velvet flag with white tape on it to simulate the wormhole, and uh, and so th that that title sequence is pretty much as as I envisioned it. And then with uh, Voyager, the producers were very busy with features and other things, so I got to 
kind of explore where I'd like to go in space and working with uh, a bunch of terrific people, um, Dave Stipes, the team at MHG and Santa Barbara Studios doing the CG work. And that title sequence is interesting because it's a, a hybrid of different technologies uh, running from motion controls, um, miniatures to CG, uh, to uh, throwing handfuls of of um, baking soda for solar ejecta shot at high oh. speed. Uh, and even one of the planets in it, I just painted on a cardboard disc with acrylic paint. And so it's it's all these different technologies combined. And one of the things about Voyager at the time, it was really a big deal to be able to make Voyager's wings go up when it goes to warp, to warp rather. And uh, Tony, who built the model of, of Voyager, uh, was had to find these super high tech little chains to put in the wings that were so accurate that it could repeat the motion uh, perfectly so that you could shoot the, the different passes. Uh, whenever you see a ship, you see the beauty pass, the mat pass, the warp drive pass, the deflection shield pass, the running light pass, the window passes. And one other fact about Voyager is I always felt it would be cool if we could see through the windows rather than just see white windows. So I went around the Voyager set and took slides and gave the slides to Tony. And Tony built little cycloramas inside some clear windows wow. so that when the ship goes by in close up, you actually see a little perspective shifting in the rooms as you go by. Because it is, you can, it's, it's one thing about Voyager that always stands out is you can see, it looks like it's not, you know, a solid piece. It looks like it is hollow, that there is rooms inside. It's one thing I've always really enjoyed about it. Um, and we were we we were speaking to um, Andre Bormanis yesterday. Actually, we were talking about Voyager specifically, and we were talking about how, was it season five is when the digital models begins to get used really, really heavily. So from night onwards, uh, we move from the uh, the physical model to the digital model not to say that we never see the physical model again but i don't think any any new shots were filmed after season five with the physical model well a voyager a voyager yeah uh no that's not true we, we continued to shoot the physical physical model i'm loving this um okay because because i was thinking that because as ds9 and voyager go along obviously there becomes more of a hybrid and then more of a leaning toward cgi so how what was that like in house uh well it was um it, it changed what what we were doing um especially with the team at, at image g and and the, the team at paramount uh we became more like orchestra conductors rather than players in a band that played our own instruments uh, because the learning curve to become a master of cg animation uh was way beyond us uh and so we got to work with these really great artists. And I think what we brought to them is a sense of artistry rather than, well, I'll make a 15 degree pan here and this will happen. No, yeah. And so getting them to think about cinematic storytelling uh, that each shot has to tell a story. And you have to understand that even though it may be on screen for only a few seconds, during those few seconds, that shot is the star of the show, and it must deliver um, an advancement in the plot 
and deliver something that both delights and edifies the audience. Um, I think it's fair to say that um, he has nailed it. Um, but in in the spirit of we we spoke about the remaster of TNG there, um, and we've been audience have been hoping and praying for a remaster of Deep Space Nine and Voyager, but I think both of those shows are probably the most difficult out of all of Star Trek to remaster because of the mix of model and CGI and that so much was rendered in standard definition at the time. Is that, like, let's say right now we go, hi, here you go, Dan, here's all the money you want. Would that be a terrifying task now to take on? Yeah, to me, um, especially Deep Space Nine, there are so many organic elements, as we call them, like fire. Um, and it's hard to get something that's as unpredictable as fire to you won't be wouldn't be able to match it. It would be kind of a rethinking of it or reimagining, as people like to use that term. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, certainly all things are possible with time and money. <laughs> Dan, question as well. Like everything you've done in terms of like what you've done in terms of VFX, in terms of design, all that kind of thing. Did you ever do any of the composing? You surely must have at some point said, I want this type of music for this type of scene or something like that. It's the one thing I'm not seeing anywhere about you, but surely, surely you must have something. Well, actually, uh, in uh, in Birthright Part 2, there's a uh, there are no human cast members for most of the show. And there's a scene where Worf is making an escape through the jungle and he's being pursued by the Romulans. And... Uh, the composer of that episode was Jay Chataway, who is both a wonderful composer and a wonderful human being. And Jay and I still stay in touch. And uh, uh, and so I uh, asked Jay that when you do the music for that sequence, uh, can we have something really strange that's, that's not uh, familiar instruments uh, th- that... Uh, and so Jay said, what do you have in mind? So I, I have a, a Laotian musical instrument called a can, K-A-A-N. And it's made out of, they, there are two versions. The one I have is made out of a gourd. And then there are a bunch of reed pipes in it. And you uh, press little holes on it to change the pitch and you blow through it. And it sounds remarkably like a cat being disemboweled and... Uh, and uh, so Jay sampled uh, those sounds and built that into the chase sequence. And we were really uh, excited about it. And it, it was a lot of really wild percussion. And then when the show was aired, uh, Jay called me up immediately after it was on. Hey, what happened to the music there? And I said, I have no idea. So I spoke to the producer involved with the sound. And he said, well, that that music was a little... Uh, unusual for us so luckily i i found something that would work in that scene and uh, so this what would have been a really unique uh uh score for a scene uh will be heard by no one but but jay and myself oh no that's awful that is heartbreaking and oh. it was really good oh because jay's such a genius you know he's uh, and uh and it, it was really uh, it was really different for Star Trek. So uh, rather than 
having something that sounded very savage. It sounds like a suspense music cue. Oh, Ben, that's awful to hear. That is... um... I, I don't know this music producer. I've never met this music producer, but <laughs> if he's listening, uh, um, my goodness, my goodness. Um, Dan, as well, because of the fact that we're from Ireland and I think there is a story here to be told about what connection Ireland and its locations has within Star Trek now. Oh, well, my uh, my family and I took a... a uh, a vacation in Ireland, and it was a uh, uh, you know vi- visiting our ancestral homeland. And my father uh, and uh, was very proudly Irish, and my grandfather, who passed before I was born, uh, was uh, very proud to have come from Ireland. So we were uh, very where, excited to go. Where in Ireland is the where, where are they from, Dan? Actually, that, that's lost in the family history. But uh, we oh. wish we knew. And we when we were in Ireland, we couldn't find too many curries. But um, so there was a uh, an Iron Age fort uh, that I that we visited, and I went around shooting angles as if I were directing a scene there. Well, I need a master. I need somebody coming through the gate. I need this, and so uh, then also uh, photographs of uh, the Burns area uh, were very good, and then. Uh, so they, we even wrote a, an episode of Voyager to take advantage of that photography called Blink of an Eye. Mm-hmm. And so that's one connection. Then there's um, Stovacor, the Klingon afterworld, kind of Klingon hell, uh, incorporated the gates from uh, Ashford Castle and uh, also those wonderful stone walls that surround a lot of the fields in Ireland that are yeah. so magnificently constructed. Yeah. Those became the walls of Stovacor, using them as an inspiration. Then um, the exterior of the uh, Bajoran fire caves in Deep Space Nine are uh, the, the cliffs at Mizzenhead. And when we went there, knowing that Mizzenhead was outside, it didn't occur to us that Mizzenhead would be closed. And we got there about <laughs> two minutes before closing time. And the guard was explaining to us that it was that it was closed. And, uh, and we were in shock. And my son said, too bad, Dad. You could have gone in and shot some of those scenes and used them in Star Trek. And the guard said, Star Trek? Do you work on Star Trek? And I said, yeah. And he said... Uh, do you know Colomini? And I said, yeah, I work with him every day. And uh, and he said, well, hold on a minute. So he made a couple of phone calls and then several more dignitaries came down and they personally took us on a guided tour, which is why uh, those uh, beautiful cliffs are, are in Deep Space Nine. And I would imagine that uh, like those great... Uh, Buddhist sculptures in Afghanistan that the Taliban destroyed. I thought, wouldn't it be cool if there were giant sculptures carved into the cliff? So in Photoshop, I just uh, freehand painted those statues into the cliffs and made little walkways and stuff. And the the interior of the fire caves are are uh, uh, partly using as elements uh, interiors of the crag caves in, in Ireland. And there's even a Deep Space Nine episode, I, f- I forget which one, where uh, the uh, these reptilian aliens are 
uh, we shot in a, a sand quarry outside of LA, but I used uh, parts of the uh, Ring of Kerry coastline uh, as uh, the the sea around it. Uh, so uh, there's a lot of a lot of Ireland in in Star Trek. Was there anything else from your trip to Ireland that you wanted to get into an episode, but you couldn't? Oh, that I took about fifty rolls of film, so there, um, there's doubtless there's so much I would have liked to view because you know, Ireland is so beautiful, and uh, you know I have a very close spiritual connection with it. And obviously, the next question leading on is, what is Colomini like? Uh, Colm's fun. He's he's a uh, he's very uh, very self aware in a good way, uh, mm. and uh, he, he's. Uh, both a wonderful actor and it's fun to hang around. As a matter of fact, uh, we uh, ran into him in our local supermarket not too long ago, and uh, he was uh, buying groceries and our shopping carts bumped into each other. Oh, my word. I mean, that's just, I mean, like, uh, Sean, I'm sure you feel the same about this. Like, I can't imagine how I'd react. I'd like to think I, I like to play things cool, you know, like, but if you turn around and be like, that's Chief O'Brien. How are you getting on? How are you? Of course, it's different for us. You know, we're fanboys. You know, you're just like, you know, kind of, ah, I've painted you up in this color and I've put composited you in this shot and everything. How are you getting on? What are you buying? Well, there was another funny one where uh, we were in the, our local shopping mall uh, walking out of the Apple store and my wife and I were walking down and, and somebody grabs me from behind. And so I instinctively grabbed his arm and started to flip him over <laughs> <laughs> and, and I look up and it and it's uh and the face looks up at me in an old crummy baseball hat and he said, It's me, Scott. <laughs> it was Scott Bakula. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what's funny because obviously you know you're a trained Tai Chi, like you know what you're at. And obviously Scott Bakula, by all accounts, is just the nicest man in the world. Like, you oh, know, he's wonderful. He, he made a terrible mistake that day. <laughs> well, nobody was hurt, but he was. Um, he's he was the most wonderful of of people. He, uh, um, uh, he was the easiest to work with, super most cooperative person. Uh, I I can't speak highly enough of him. And I got to work with Scott again on on uh, the NBC spy comedy Chuck, where he played Chuck's father. Yeah, and, and uh, a joy to encounter him a second time. And Dan, when you look back on it of the four series, what was your favorite one to work on? Uh, that's like asking if you have four children, which is your favorite kid. And that's exactly what I'm asking you, Dan. You've got to pick one. <laughs> I, I, actually, no. I can, I can pretend I'm a politician and they're all wonderful. <laughs> Good answer. Good answer. Show coming through with the tough questions. Nice. Yeah. And, okay, I'm, I'm going to change the question slightly. It's not indicating what show you like the most. Of all the 18 years in Star Trek that you worked on the series, what is the one year that stands out for you where you say that was the year we made the biggest improvement or this is the year everything went well or is there a year like that well there was a, a there was a year i forget what season it was when uh when next generation started paramount made a really creative uh, courageous decision and that was to do the final master as 
video as opposed to a film master. And they realized, especially with Gene and and uh, the great post-production producer, Peter Lauritsen, uh, realized that there's no way they could crank out the effects and get them online if they did everything with the earlier optical printing technology. The problem was that it was we were working on one-inch analog tape. So every time you would dupe a an element, the image quality would suffer. And several seasons into it, there was a, a dramatic uh, improvement in, in tape technology. And we went from one-inch analog to D5. And D5 basically untied our hands and allowed us to keep duplicating, do shots in stages. And it changed the shot, working on shots into a very painterly way that you could do something, analyze it. Oh, well, let's add a little bit more of this. Let's do that. Oh, let's pull that out of there. And it was kind of like conducting a, an orchestra of, of great musicians where let's have a little stronger violin. Let's tone down the percussion over here. And so D5 was probably the biggest advance uh, up until the time when CG took over uh, that that allowed us to produce uh, better work uh, at a faster piece, pace uh, it, it with a higher image quality. That is like that is it's so it's so interesting. Um, I actually wanted to just revisit. So you obviously you, you worked on the, the remaster for season two of The Next Generation. My second horribly scarring moment comes from season two of The Next Generation. Um, loud as a whisper. What did those three people do to justify such an awful, awful death? We see their skeletons and everything, Dan. Well, that was my homage to George Powell's War of the Worlds. And I remember as a boy seeing that in the local theater, which was a half a block from our house. Um, and there's that scene where the aliens are coming out of the, the pit for the first time. And you see those really cool uh, spaceships. And then there's a, a, a captain who says, uh, let the Air Force take care of these babies now. And he gets shot with a heat ray. And then there's a moment where you see his skeleton. And by today's standards, it was it kind of holds up. Uh, but I wanted to that was my homage. So I bought a anatomically accurate skeleton, painted it so it looked kind of grisly and then just uh, uh, would position it to match the actors. And the uh, and then the great John Tesca um, animated the the skin burning away and leaving the skeleton for, to sizzle for a moment before they they disappear. And uh, uh, one of the uh, actors who got zapped was, uh, uh, by the way, John Delancey's wife, uh, John, who played Q so brilliantly. I actually did. That, that's news to you. I didn't know that. Um, that. Uh... It, it's it's fun because in episodes like Conspiracy, like Loud as a Whisper, Star Trek, which is of course a, a sci-fi show, but it is it can bring in so many other genres. And here are some horror moments which are on show as well, in a relatively safe way, unless you're a six-year-old Irish child, uh, in a relatively safe way. And it's it's just it's absolutely fascinating. You kind of don't know what you're gonna get from one week to the next. That must have been fun as an artist as well, because you had so much room to play. Yeah, and there was uh, another one we did that was kind of weird where um, I wanted somebody to uh, be whisked off into um, 
kind of dissolved and it was before particle animation existed. And so uh, the, around Paramount Studios, there were a bunch of ashtrays outside that had pure white sand in it. So I went out with a coffee cup and scooped up a, some of that white sand and then went on an animation stand, which is a camera pointing straight down, put some black cardboard down and projected a, a, a picture of the actor who was going to get dissolved and traced his silhouette and then carefully put sand where the silhouette was. And then I shot with the camera at very high speed and took an air jet and blew the sand away. And so uh, by stretching the actor and printing him through the particles of sand, it made it look like his body just disintegrated. That is so cool. Dan, how do you even come up with the idea to do something like that? Like, if you are if you were saying to me or Sean, I need to do this, I wouldn't have a clue what to do. I'd be here for a couple of years trying to work it out. And you're just here, I'm just going to go outside, get some sand here from the ashtray, and I'm going to have something done. 20 minutes stops, no problem. Yeah, it just comes to me, I, I don't know. Um, it's definitely it's it's a gift and I mean there's so many different I mean the book is fabulous because there's so many different you know, highlighting so much of what you've done I wanted to uh, talk as well about the arsenal of freedom because those little weapons were just cool and I mean it's a, it's a shampoo bottle and a pantyhose container yeah it was a plastic easter egg uh, yeah. a shampoo bottle and you know those little uh, coils uh, those rubber tube plastic tubes that you put uh, cables inside that's oh, yeah. one of those yeah. and the other thing about arsenal of freedom was the uh, i didn't want to shoot motion control because it's so perfect and everybody thought i was insane including ron moore um, <laughs> and uh, uh and i decided to uh just mount the little model upside down and put it on a stick in front of a green screen and then i did all the motion by hand with tai chi and it had this kind of natural float and flutter. Because it does. It is. It's an episode that and it, it holds up for several reasons. But, I mean, it looks cool. And it's got that great shot as well. Um, You probably know the one I'm thinking of, where the saucer is separated. We're up in the atmosphere. And then you have the star drive section, which is just starting to fly down. And then you see the, the, um, the weapon just starts to slowly appear from the burning... Uh, as it flies through the atmosphere, and I've just always I've loved that image forever. Well, yeah, yeah it was interesting that uh, Blind Geordie was the one who figured out how to see it, and uh, uh, and so in order to get that, I thought it would be interesting to uh, make a, a duplicate model because shampoo bottles and pantyhose containers and plastic Easter eggs were readily available. So I made a second one and covered it with black velvet and then took slivers of white plastic shopping bag and cut it with scissors. So they were about 12 to 16 inches long and glued them on the velvet and put it on our motion control stand and surrounded by electric fans so that the plastic would flap. And by keeping the shutter of the camera open for three seconds of frame, there would be motion blur as the plastic moved around and it made the flapping plastic look like gases. And then by printing real fire of a newspaper burning in the parking lot in a barbecue, um, we printed that real fire through the flapping plastic. And that's what created that illusion you saw. It's fabulous. It's absolutely like, 
uh, and and also because of course there's kind of the difference then as well is so much of that is done with practical elements um and it's things like that that of course lead to what can now be done via cgi because it was done i mean it seems reductive for me to say it was done low tech because oh, it doesn't totally feel low tech. Tech. yeah but it, it it almost feels like i'm insulting it by saying it was low tech and i don't mean that at all i mean no, it's not cool. insulting at all we had low technology and we would just try to make it up as we went along and then, like, as you're making the show um, and doing all the effects and all that, like, I know what you're saying. You were stuck to deadlines. Everything had to be processed really quickly and things like that. But were you ever, did you ever kind of just step back for a second and say to yourself going, like, this is really important and what we're doing is going to be around for a long time to come due to Star Trek's success? I I don't know that any of us really thought about it that way. We were so desperate to meet our deadlines <laughs> that uh, that's what we were doing. And and it was fun to work. Uh, we really enjoyed all the people we worked with. Uh, that was one of the uh, things there. Uh, Star Trek seemed to have an unspoken policy of no jerks. And uh, <laughs> so it's good policy. Everybody was really, really fun to be around and work with. And uh, I think that's why we all loved it. Our loyalty was to um, our our colleagues who had become friends and family. And uh, so I don't think we realized the cultural significance of what we were doing because we were so desperate just to get it done. And how do you feel about it now, looking back years later? Uh, well, I, th I look back at our work um, as we were an important um, evolutionary transition from one technology to another. Um, the first one was transitioning from optical printing. And if you're not familiar with that technology, it's basically a camera and a projector pointed at each other on a lathe bed. And, and that's how all compositing was done, like the original Star, Star Wars, for example. And all the Star Trek movies you know, up through Star Trek V were done that way. Um, and the courage to have a digital, or it wasn't even digital, have a video final product on Next Generation. And uh, then as we kind of almost grudgingly got dragged into using CG because it became physically impossible to do the shows. And we would do a lot of hybrid work like... Um, the title sequence for Voyager or um, uh, Sacrifice of Angels for Deep Space Nine, which had a huge ba space battle that had a lot of background ships were digital because we didn't like the artifacts of stretching textures over over virtual shapes. But the foreground models were were physical models so that that's where the eye would be looking and you just, oh, there's a ship back there, but I'm going to pay attention to the one in the foreground. And so... I think uh, moving in that direction, uh, we kind of assisted the evolution of the of the industry to go full, fully CG, which it is now. And looking back on our work, it's uh, Neolithic by comparison to what's possible now. Perhaps, and yet looks so good. Um. Um, so it, I'm, I'm, we're coming up toward the end of the interview now, but um, shows if you have any more questions there as well. 
Um, I've put you on the spot now. You had all the hard questions. Now I'm going to put you on the spot. I was going to ask, but I think I might be stealing your thunder if I ask the question because it's one you normally lead into each interview with. So I'd say you know what question it is. So I'm going to let you ask it, Sean, because you always ask that question. Um, boy, well, it's a very it's a very easy question. No thought needed at all. You know, just um, what does Star Trek mean to you, Dan? Wow, that's an interesting question. Um, well, it was a big part of my life. It it uh, unintentionally became a part of my identity. Uh, my son, uh, up until he went to college, uh, doesn't remember a time when Star Trek wasn't part of his life. Um, so uh, to me, it, it speaks for kind of a, a, an artistic period that I had a lot of creative freedom to be part of something that was bigger than the sum of its parts um, that had cultural significance and hopefully empire inspired a lot of people around the world. And uh, it's, it's interesting how uh, even uh, in New Zealand, I uh, was visiting there and uh, the power of what my son calls the power of Star Trek uh, got me out of a couple of sticky situations. And I even met a, a Maori warrior who um, uh, we got into a, a conversation about spear ergonomics and uh, uh, we, uh, and I was so overbooked that I couldn't have time to visit his traditional martial arts school. But the night before we were leaving Wellington, he showed up in the lobby of our hotel with this beautiful carved ceremonial spear and uh, did the official Maori's presentation with his tongue out and did some dance with the spear. And then he demanded that uh, that I show him uh, a spear technique. So I showed him my favorite disembowelment technique where you go under the sternum and shake your body into an elliptical move and everything inside pops out like an uncorked turkey. Um, and uh, so um, when we were leaving, the uh, the uh, I couldn't find a, a tube long enough to put the spear in. So I figured I'd just check it in because it's a wooden ceremonial spear. What are you going to do with it? And the imagine a six foot four version of Arnold Schwarzenegger with the deepest voice you've ever heard say, sorry, mate, you can't take that on the plane. It's a weapon. And I said, well, it's kind of a ceremonial spear. It'll get broken if I check it in. Why can't you just put it in the closet for me? Sorry, I can't do that. So as a joke, one of my friends who was with me said, uh, that's okay. It's Dan Curry from Star Trek. And he, the guard did a double take and said, Dan Curry, Star Trek, you're the inventor of the bat left. And it turned out he had read an article in Gung Fu magazine about the creation of the Batleth. And so he said, hang on. He came back, came back with two more guys and they and a roll of paper. And they said, if I would draw Batleth's custom fit for them, uh, they would stow the spear on the plane. And true to his word, when I got off the plane in uh, in L.A., there's a uniformed security guard holding the spear and a sign with my name on it. <laughs> that is that is cool. Um, what a what a story. What a career. Um, and I mean, and, it, and it's like, a you know, I can do whatever I like career as well. And rightly so, you know, <laughs> um, Dan, I thank you so much just for 
for taking the time to speak to us this evening, for creating, basically creating our, I was going to say our childhood, so I'm still very much living it today. Thanks very much for everything, really. Um, I owe so much of my dreams and nightmares to you. <laughs> well, that will haunt me. <laughs> good no um no thank you thank you so much um it has been it has been an absolute treat i mean like i i wasn't exaggerating in the beginning when i said you are a maestro in the field um and it has been it has been a real pleasure just getting to to hear some of your stories this evening um joseph i know you probably feel the same way Oh, indeed, Dan. Thank you so much. Your uh, contribution is absolutely legendary. So thank you so much for everything you've done, because like, as we said at the start of the show, we can watch an episode of Star Trek and we can sit down and enjoy it. But, you know, your contributions are absolutely all over it. And for myself, Sean, for millions of Star Trek fans, thank you so much. Well, thank you. And again, have to stress that there are a lot of people, uh, great artists, great minds working on it. And I was just one of the team. Um, well, we're going to go and thank them all. We'll thank them all individually. All right. But, but no, and actually, and what's nice as well is that because of what you've shown us, we will get to see your work again on February the 16th, which is the premiere date for Star Trek Picard season three. Okay. Well, look for the Curleth. Very, very much so. Uh, um, Dan, once again, thank you so much. Show, thank you very much for, for yeah. joining me this week. Very much appreciated. And to all of our listeners, thank you so much, as always, for listening along. Um, we hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. We will, of course, be back next week, as usual. And in the meantime, make sure that you look after yourselves. Have a wonderful week and live long and prosper. <laughs>